Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44 says, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And then they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, and one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word, that you'd also guide and shape our thinking today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We have been in an entire series entitled um, The Challenge of a Biblical Worldview, and there's different segments of that, and this has been now a two-part segment that we began last week, uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, um, which is basically an examination of heaven, hell, and the end of time. So last week we talked about heaven and hell and the biblical perspective of what that would be. Today I want to take a little bit of time and discuss with you uh, basically the end of time, the the rapture, there's a lot of different phrases and words that are used to address this. This passage that we just read, um, kind of a sobering statement, you know, to be had. Um, there's a key phrase in here, and before we get to that key phrase, I, I want to point out to you, there have been a lot of different attempts to um, predict the coming of Christ. And um, there are several terms we're going to use today. Rapture is one, tribulation is another, uh, mark of the beast. Um, some of these terms like rapture aren't found in the scripture any more than trinity or some other terms are, but they encompass a, a, a college of thought that we see within scripture. There was a guy back in uh, the 1800s, his, his name was William Miller. He had a farm in Vermont. He'd been a soldier at one time. And somewhere in his life, he ended up having a real experience as far as faith was concerned, and he began to deeply pursue some things of Christianity. And he became fascinated with the end times and the wrap-up of things. And so um, through his readings and examinations and studies, he felt like he had a sense of when that was going to be. And so uh, he felt it was going to be a span between March 21st of 1843 and March 21st of 1844. And he offered this out there. 
lot of people were concerned. A lot of people thought about it heavily. Um, the time came and it passed. And you may have guessed by now, Christ didn't come back. Okay? There's another time he then pushed out to October 22 of 1844. He was pretty confident that was the one. And a whole bunch of people got together and they actually sold items and everything else was prepared to have this happen. And again, that didn't take place. Um, there was a group of people that came out of that group. They viewed themselves as Millerites, follower of, of William Miller. What evolved out of that was the Seventh-day Adventist church as it moved into the next century. Miller, though, is just one of, of people throughout time that have tried to predict the second coming of Christ or what is referred to as a rapture, which is the gathering of the church up into the air and, and, and off with, with God. Um, one of the ones that's probably the most memorable for me, and some of you might remember it, was back in 1988. There's a guy named Edgar, Edgar Weisnant, and he published a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Some of you might remember that. Does anybody remember 1988? Okay. <laughs> then you also realize that it didn't happen. <laughs> okay. Well, here's the interesting thing to me. He, he, he did a follow-up book. It was entitled, 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1989. <laughs> Again, in case you're just slow on it today, it didn't happen in 89 either. Um, so you might gather from the way I'm talking here right now that I'm saying that, that this is an event that never happens. That's not it at all. <sighs> what we're saying, especially at least in the scripture, what Jesus is saying is that no one knows the time. Some of you might remember Y2K. Remember that one? Okay, everything was going to crash and burn, and there's all sorts of prophecies. Christ is going to come back, and all this stuff was happening. And, um, I mean, there was a real intense thing. I know people that really sold out over this. I had a friend of mine who was attending here at the time. He was a Texas guy, and he, he, he was committed to stuff, and he, he, he let me know before he left to go up north for that, you know, week, that, hey, when it all falls apart, I got my gold and my guns up there north. Come on up, and you'll find a refuge and a can of beans. And I'm like appreciate that. Um, some of you were here at the time, and you'll recall that actually the Sunday preceding Y2K, I was emphatic that it was not the return of Christ that was going to happen in the next day or two on that. Well, it turned out I was right, okay? Um, but also, to be fair, I figured, eh, what if I'm wrong? Nobody will really notice or care anyways, right? <laughs> no, that's not what motivates or drives me. What motivated and drive me to make that statement was what we find in this passage of Scripture. But about that day or hour, let's put that back up again if you would. But about that day or hour, what? No Who? No one. no one. Nobody knows. Okay, in fact, not even the angels. Okay? It even goes on and says, nor the Son. And there can be discussion whether that's after his ascension or not, but, but something that seems to be only the Father. So even in the unity of the Godhead, and this is a good argument for Trinity, incidentally, again, here too, um, that, that there's, there's something that's still distinct in this sense that only the Father knows. So here's the deal. The next time you have someone that writes a book and tries to sell you this book, 2022, and 22 reasons why, okay, Jesus is going to return this time, don't buy the book. Don't buy the thinking behind it. Don't be intimidated. Don't be fearful. Don't be caught up with that. Now, it does say, though, that when this happens, that there's going to be a suddenness to it. 
It says it's going to be like the days of Noah, where they're just eating and drinking, not realizing there's this massive flood and judgment that's going to come upon them, that's going to completely wipe them out. This concept of any time, anywhere, any moment can lead to a grotesque insecurity in believers that can cause a fear or even a panic. And that's not a faith living before God. Now, I want you to understand, I'm not saying this isn't going to happen. I'm saying no one, no, rephrase that. I'm not saying nothing. Jesus is saying no one's going to know. So don't get caught up with that. Don't get confused by that. Don't get disturbed by that. Now, at the same time, this rapture concept is the idea that someone's going to be there, two people, and one's taken up, one's not. One's following God, one's not. There's a discussion about something called the tribulation, and that's another biblical perspective that there's going to be a tribulation. There's going to be a a time of great turmoil and struggle in this planet. And and, and in that, there are three different positions that what's called pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. You can take any one of the three positions. The, the, it doesn't matter as much as, as it does the issue of the fact that there is a tribulation. Pre-trib is one of the stronger arguments. It says that basically the church is going to be caught up in a moment by Christ. And so as a result, the common grace that is, is expressed through the Spirit being present in the church is withdrawn from this world. And there's going to be a really bad tribu- tribulation of time then here. And that makes sense. Others argue for a mid-tribulation rapture. Others for a post-tribulation I think the most important thing to matter is that it's a rapture and that there's a gathering together of those who are following Christ and there's a leaving behind of those who are not. So we draw that not only from this passage of Scripture but from other passages of Scripture as well as we go along. Now in the middle of all this that's going to happen with this rapture and with this tribulation that's going to take place at some point in time or another, and for those of you who have been following the lions, I know you already feel like you're in the tribulation right now. And I'm going to make a commitment to not follow them anymore. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 20, it says this, But the beast was captured without the false prophet who performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Notice the connection of the mark of the beast with worshipping its image. Those two connect together. It also talks about deluding people. It talks about deceiving. Matthew 24, verses 20, verse 24 says, false messiahs, false prophets are going to rise up and perform, perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. The Christian realm seems to be convinced that they're just absolutely going to know the beast. But what this implies is that this beast or this antichrist, they're going to appear like a Christ, but are going to be antithetical uh, to who Christ is. That they're going to do things in such a way, or be aligned, it appears at least, with certain values, that people could be deceived by it. That they could end up actually worshiping them. In fact, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, talks about this. It says there's thrones, and there were those seated to, to judge. I saw the souls that had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. The linking again of worship to this mark of the beast, that, that there's some connectivity of some type to be there. It's not something that happens accidentally 
you're going to hear a lot of talk and probably already have and you will continue over the years of, of like this could be the mark of the beast or that could be the mark of the beast and the last thing you want to do is make sure you don't get that mark and that's true you don't want to do that but it's, it's not it, it's, an, it's an attitude of heart more than it is that mark it's linked to worship so here let me make it clear if you are not rejecting Christ and consciously choosing to worship this antichrist or Satan then whatever happens you're not actually part of that process let me give you this as an example if I came to this country from, let's just say, Bulgaria, I know nothing of the culture of this country and its habits and history, and some friends of mine that I meet here decide to take me to a party, and we're going to play dress-up, and they say, hey, this will be really great. The best outfit you could have is, is a white hood and a burning cross. If you show up, it'll be hysterical. I wear that not knowing anything about that or the values that it implies, Later, I begin to understand, wait a minute, those have nothing to do with who I am and whatever. I've rejected that utterly. It is not part of who I am. Just because someone fooled me into putting on a white hood and a cross doesn't mean that I am a Klansman, something that I would bitterly resist to the deepest core of who I am. In the same way, you're not going to wake up suddenly in the middle of the night and find out someone put a mark of the beast on you, and now you're damned forever. It's linked to worship. Satan wants to be worshipped, not just marking things. The reason Satan ended up kicking out of heaven was because he wanted to be worshipped rather than God. When he engages Jesus in the temptations, remember the wrap-up of the whole thing was look at take him to a high place, say, look at if you'll just bow down, if you'll just worship me, I'll give you everything. Satan wants worship. So unless you are consciously, intentionally rejecting Christ, deliberately identifying with Antichrist or with Satan, if your loyalty and your devotion is stepping away from Christ and being given to anyone else, political entity, a religious entity, any other entity, unless you are doing that, then you are not going to accidentally be marked in some fashion. In ancient times, tattooing was something that was done to indicate ownership. It was done to um, uh, indicate tribal identification. Nowadays, we tattoo for a lot of different fun reasons. But this mark is not something that is going to be in such an obvious fashion or slip past you in such a, a deceptive fashion. So please, don't get into conversations where, where you're projecting out that, that this tattoo or this thing is a mark of the beast. It will be accompanied by an intentional denunciation of Christ, an intentional worship of Antichrist or Satan. If you really want to be concerned, watch where your loyalties are. The moment your loyalties get wrapped up in any one political figure, you got a problem. Let me slow that down. The moment that you get your political, your identity wrapped up with a political figure, you're in trouble. There's a few of you are going, okay. Let me take it one step further. The moment that you get your identity wrapped up with a religious figure, you're in trouble. There is one and only one. Now that's interesting. We've got more results on the religious one than on the political one. Okay? Maybe this says something about our heart and our attitude, doesn't it, guys? You know, oh yeah, I would never give it to a religious person, but ah, that one guy, your girl, she looks good. 
The mark of the beast is linked to worship. You don't betray Christ by accident. You do it intentionally. So don't be worried about different items here and there and questioning whether this is the mark or that's the mark. Live your life out. Now, Revelation does talk about the idea, uh, and I don't have the passage for you, but I'll read it. It's talking about this beast, and it's going to force all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. So they couldn't buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name, which is 666 and all that. Hold that for a minute, buy or sell, and let me take you to another passage here. Second pattern, Peter, rather, uh, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. And guess what they'll be doing? Yeah, yeah, it's what they do, okay? It's, it's like a Geico commercial right in the middle of the scripture, okay? It's what they do, all right? They're scoffing, following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it's been since the beginning of creation. So in this first portion of conversation that we're talking about, I'm, I'm trying to make the point that no one's going to know the point of time and that we shouldn't be caught with fear about that or, or worried and preoccupied about marks and all this kind of stuff because it'll be clear when it is that. We don't give our loyalty to political figures or to religious figures or to anyone else other than Christ. Okay, But this next segment that I want to point out to you is this. That does not mean, if you're going to have a biblical view, that we scoff at this and say, well, it's, it's never going to happen. It's not, it's, there's, there is no coming. It's, things have gone on like they have for all of time and space, and, and there's no issue about that. That's not something that could or should be said by a Christian. Instead, what we're doing is we're very conscious of the fact that this is real. Now, let me give you a few things to add to the, to the intensity of the moment of our time right now. In Ezekiel chapter 37, there's an entire chapter devoted to something called the Valley of Dry Bones. In this chapter, um, the prophet is brought before God, and, and God takes him to this valley, and he sees all these bones scattered across the valley. And uh, um, God says to him, do you think these bones can rise up and, and form together as, as, as life? And the prophet's priest says, only you know, God. So God begins an action that takes all these scattered bones across the valley, and the muscles and sinews come together, and the flesh is added on. Before long, you have this, this large gathering of people now fully enfleshed. It's an illustration that Jesus is bringing not just to them, but to us as well. And in this passage that we're just referencing, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. And they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you from them. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. And say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they've gone. I'll gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. Now this is just one of a, of a number of different prophecies. There's another one that Jesus references about a fig leaf. And when the fig leaf um, begins to, to turn green and begin to sprout, that there's something happening there again. Both the fig leaf and this passage here, and this one's explicitly saying Israel. There are those that, that spoke of this way before 1948, that when Israel was to be established again as a nation, that this would be an indicator that we're reaching near a, a, a point of time. 
1948, for those of you that aren't into the history deal a whole lot, I, I, I have a fat passion for history for simply this. Without history, you can't know where we came from. You don't know what we're, how we got here, and you can't know where we're going. History gives us perspective. So let me offer this as a perspective. In 1948, Israel, in the same boundaries with which it was originally established, becomes a nation once again against massive odds massive odds. The moment that, that it was announced, six, six established nations uh, um, invaded it and it held out. In all of history, I'm not conscious of any nation that has ever in all of history reconstituted itself within the original borders, with the original language, customs, and religion. Especially one that hasn't been around for 2,000 years since Roman legions stamped their way across the Middle East. No nation on the planet has ever done that. And it just happens to be one that's referenced in Scripture, that happens to be established around Jerusalem, that happens to be the place that Jesus walked and all those things. That is beyond, guys. Even if I wasn't a Christian, as a historian, I would be deeply freaked out right now. Because that just doesn't happen. Something took place. The fact that Israel's been reestablished as a nation. Now, I do not believe that, that the political entity that is Israel, that there's any particular dispensation. There's something called Christian Zionism that believes support for Israel is so unstinting that we should support everything that, that, that Israel as a nation does. And, and that's a little bit of a problematic issue. Uh, I don't know if it was Winston Churchill or someone else that, that was countering someone's patriotism when someone said, my country, right or wrong? And the response was, that's like saying my mother, drunk or sober. You know, when she's sober, I support her. When she's drunk, I don't. And the same way with nation, national identities as well. And the same thing with Israel as a state, as a political entity. There's, there's limits. We don't blindly follow or say that's stamped with the mark of God. However, the Jewish people themselves and something about the nation of Israel, that place, there is something about that. The fact that that's been reestablished. So something in this last season of time has changed, we could argue. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 5 says there's going to be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. It's right in the middle there. I don't know why that's there. We'll be reading this at the next youth retreat, loudly. Um, but, but it is interesting. It's right in the middle of this, of abusive, proud, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy. All that's tied in there. Why? I think that the disobedient to parents, it has to do with authority and rejection of authority. Not just within the household, but authority as a whole. And we're seeing that in our country. Uh, a real rejection of authority on multiple levels. Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, <sighs> having a form of godliness but denying its power. 51% of this country claim to be Christians. Sometimes the numbers jump as high as 65 depending on what questions you're asking. Like, do you go to church on a regular basis? Yes. Oh, then we'll include you in the 65. No, uh, we include you lower. So, But only 6% have a biblical worldview. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Not really having a grasp but having nothing to do with such people, it says. 
we see today certain signs that I could argue strongly indicate that we're nearing the end of time. No one knows the time or the hour. I'm not going to predict it next week, next year, whatever else. But there has been something that's changed in the last year or two. Or de- last century, I would say, actually. In addition to that, we're seeing technology today that when it comes to this passage, it says no one will buy or sell, no, there will be no way to counterfeit this mark. We see for the first time technology that could actually achieve this for the first time in history. Now, again, please... Do not walk out of this gathering or off of this session here and, and, and go wandering and screaming in insecurity or, or seeing every little thing that's done to you as a mark of the beast or something that's that type of scary thing. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 says, Few yourselves know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This passage and other ones like this, um, I was raised on. In fact, there was a whole series of movies at one time, three movies that came out, Thief in the Night, A Distant Thunder, Image of the Beast. It was all around the rapture and the tribulation, and it was all designed to literally, if you'll forgive me, scare the hell out of you, okay? Literally out of you, okay? was the whole concept. And um, the concept of the rapture uh, was so real, so intense, that, you know... we literally believed it could happen any minute, and rightfully so. I remember coming home from school on one or two occasions, and I'd come into the house, and for some strange reason, my parents weren't present. And the first thing that went through my brain was, they should be here, they're not here. I got left behind. <laughs> and it didn't help. I'd see my sisters, but I knew they'd have been left anyways, and so it didn't <laughs> make any difference to me. And it, and it so consumed us. It's like, okay, I, I'm never going to marry because I'll be gone before that happens. And then we'll never get out of college. You know, why plan for a career? Why do any of those things? Because we're going to be gone any minute. It plays on a fear. Now, let me be clear. If fear is the only way that God can get your attention, then by all means, be scared right now. You should be. Be afraid. Be very afraid. But that's not the basis of how the gospel is supposed to work. Our, our, our draw to God is, it, it, it shouldn't be from terror and fear, but should be from a love and adoration that realizes what, what grace he's given us and with what arms he embraces us. Now, if fear is the only place you get, way you get to that place, then fine, let it start there. But, but that must be, that's like being terrified of a king who when you really get to know the king, you realize he just loves you to pieces. And then your relationship changes. But it's supposed to be based upon that kind of affection. We should not scoff at the idea of the rapture or tribulation or laugh at those people that are saying mark of the beast. We should counsel them, don't say it about everything because then when it actually happens, no one's going to believe you. Okay? But we shouldn't scoff. My mother lives in Hawaii for the last 20 plus years. My father and her had gone there to work with a missions organization when they retired. My mother's a nurse, so she did medical stuff. My dad um, worked with the, the students, and especially the foreign students, especially the Asian students, South Koreans, Chinese, things of this nature. And uh, um, they loved my dad. My dad was in his 80s and 90s, and Asian culture tends to respect those who are older. And um, so he was like a god to them at 80 and 90. He loved it. So I was particularly tuned to the fact when I saw a report, but nothing like what the people in Hawaii actually experienced on a Saturday morning in January, uh, I think it was like 2018, 2017, just a few years ago, when suddenly everyone's cell phone went off. 
All the emergency action things went off on all the stations, radio, television, everything else. And this was what was broadcast to everyone at the same time. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. True story. Now imagine being Hawaii when that comes across your cell phone. That would levitate you a little bit. What had happened had been that they were going to do your, you know, how they get the drills all the time going on, and we have them here, you know, too. I hate it when the television's on saying, you know, and they're doing that type of thing. The person who was setting the drill for Hawaii from a drop down on a computer screen picked the wrong item. So it came out as like a real thing. So for 38 minutes, people thought they were going to be vaporized. Now that will draw your attention. And it'll have you be aware of your mortality in that moment of time. The article said they went from paradise to panic. As a Christian, if the rapture actually happens, you're going to be going from panic to paradise. Just a thought. When those things happen, they can bring an awareness to us. These things are real. This exists. But Jesus said we're not going to know the day or the hour. So how do we operate? In fear, in panic, suspicious of every little mark, every little thing, every little word, every little moment, every time we walk in the house and no one's there? Or do we go the other way and say, it hasn't happened so far, not going to worry about it. How do we apply the scripture properly? We apply it properly by being aware that this can happen in any minute. As a result, we live our lives in an awareness that is sharply attuned to that. If we were in this gathering for a moment of time, all our phones went off, and they all said rapture imminent, one second to detonation. What would our reaction be right now? Would there be fear? Would there be panic? Would there be those of us that are anticipating? Would there be those of us that would say, finally, Finally, no school tomorrow. (laughs) What would be your reaction? This is an indicator of where you're at right now. If it's fear, why? What are you losing? Unless it's fear because you know that the way you're living your life right now is not going to be pleasing to God. We live our lives with the constant awareness that any moment of time, this reality can end. And there should be a thankfulness for that. Not as an escape clause, but as a joining with Christ. But we also live this life out. We build. We marry. We engage in relationships with people. We walk these things out. And through all of our lives, if we're in proper relationship with God, fear should not be the dominant driving thought. Romans chapter 8, verse 38, and I get chilled every time I read this passage. But I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death or life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. We walk this life out 
with an awareness that any moment, any moment, but we walk it also with confidence for the day, knowing that Christ's love and grace for us is something that, that unless we purposely renounce him and purposely embrace something that is dark, unless we purposely take a mark upon us that we knowingly, in doing so, renounces Christ and embraces Antichrist, that unless those things are consciously drawn across, that we are safe in the arms of God. In which case, how we approach these things changes dramatically. And so we're aware, any moment, any time, and there should be an anticipation. The early Christians used to say at the end of every meeting, Maranatha, even so, Lord, come quickly. And it seems so much of us, especially in Western society, fat with what we have, saying, oh, Jesus, can you hold off still until I, you know, like, there's a lot more fun things. I want. There's going to be nothing more funner than heaven. See last week's message. Note. Okay? Enough said. So walk this life with an awareness that's heaven-minded, that's constantly anticipating, but working out this life as we work it out. And with the confidence that God's grace covers you, and you don't accidentally fall out of that. It's a deliberate choice and series of choices. Father, I pray that as we consider these things that we would understand the reality of the rapture, the reality of a tribulation, the reality, Lord God, of a beast that is going to come and, and deceive. And I pray that we would not be those that would be so easily deceived, that we would not allow any religious figure, any political figure, any figure of any kind other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. to have our allegiance and our commitment to and trusting that while we lean into you, that you gather us close, that you hold us in a grip that no one, no antichrist, no beast, no one can pry us out of your hand. Let us meditate on that, I pray, Lord. Last week or two ago, I think it was, we were told there was going to be a fire alarm. They were walking through the building, setting stuff off to check the system, do whatever else. I don't know. I was just told it was going to go off at some point in time. Our fire alarm system is a particularly obnoxiously loud system. And we were in the middle of a staff meeting and uh, back in North offices, and, and without any warning, it just went off. And it was like right over my ear. And I, I left like two feet in the air. I mean, I just, you know... You can know something's going to happen, and then, you know, and we did. We knew it was going to happen, but we had work to do. And so we did the work, and then, yep, got caught, all right? I think you're following me, hopefully, so far. There's going to be a time when Christ is going to return. It's going to happen. And, and when it happens, we may be caught just a surprise still, and trust me, we're going to leap a lot higher than two feet. We're going to go all the way, all right? But until then, we've got work to do. You can't just sit there and say, well, wait till it's done. We'll all stay outside for the night. No, get the work done. But be anticipating. It's going to be a good thing. It is. So, just something to leave you with for the rest of the time, okay? 
Father, I pray your blessing upon us as a congregation. I pray that you continue to guide us as a people and as a nation. And Lord, I pray for our leaders in government, both nationwide as well as in the state. Whether we agree with them or not, Lord, politically, your scripture tells us to pray for those in authority. So we do, God. We ask that you penetrate their hearts and minds with your truth beyond even their own desires. And I pray, Lord, your protection upon us in this season of time as we move towards this time of great celebration celebrating your birth. I pray, Lord, the anticipation would grow. And Lord, if by some chance you come before that, no school tomorrow. We're good. We're good. Guide us, I pray in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. amen. God bless you guys.